Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Canada. Canada. Well, doesn't it derive from Agonyakehawar? Yeah. It's village. As Indigenous people, we are used to our stories getting a little twisted. So listen up as we set the record straight. I'm Ganyetio. Please join me as we hear from dozens of Indigenous people. Together, we will decolonize our words and our minds on the Telling Our Twisted Histories podcast. You can find episodes on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Harv, when you think about family, what's your definition? Who do you consider your family? Well, I consider my wife and my kids as my immediate family. Mm -hmm. And I include my parents and my sibling and even my uncles and aunts Mm -hmm. as my extended family. Mm. But Elena, I know you are sneaky. So obviously you (laughs) have have some strange definition. (laughs) Um, Of course. I mean, my definition is mostly like yours. But I do love the idea of chosen family. So incorporating close friends and other kinds of loved ones. But I ask not because I'm sneaky. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've noticed this, but with our show, there seems to be a trend. And that is that many inappropriate questions come from when a family looks different from what people expect. True. True. In a similar vein, this episode, we're talking to adopted people about what it's like to be asked, do you know your real parents? See, I told you you're going to be sneaky. Oh, <laughs> so this is sneaky. Okay. <laughs> well, it's never that you ask a straight uh, you ask a straight question, but the answer is never straight. Yeah, and, uh, that's what being gay is like, Harv. Sorry to tell you. <laughs> okay, but uh, but yes, no. Uh, now I think about it, makes a lot of sense. Mm. Unfortunately, I don't know anybody who has been adopted, so this never crossed my mind. But I can mm. understand that uh, the family question is going to be a little different for people who are adopted. Yeah, I feel you. No one super close to me is adopted either. So we're here to learn. We're on the case. Wonderful. Who's your real parent? Do you want to meet your real parents? It's like, well, I've met them. They raised me my whole life. What it does is it serves to legitimize birth parents and delegitimize any other type of parent. I have to be completely honest with you, Harv. Okay. I am very excited to talk to our first guest. Kristen Weinzer is a podcaster and author and hosts one of my favorite podcasts, By the Book. And she's also spoken about being an adoptee. I was born in Korea and adopted when I was a baby. And after most of my life in Minnesota, I moved to New York after college. So we're talking this episode about the question, do you know your real parents? Uh, Can you tell us about a time you've gotten this question? Oh, all the time. You know, it's even happened at the corner store. If it's another Asian person who's running the corner store, for example. Are we referring to Kim's Convenience? (laughs) (laughs) I love that show. I love that show. Uh, But, you know, if I'm in a corner store in my neighborhood and let's say the proprietors are Asian, they might try to speak to me in an Asian language, and I I don't speak any Asian languages. So I'll just say, I don't understand. I'm sorry. And it has come up more than once where the person will say, why didn't your parents teach you your language? And I'll say, oh, my parents taught me English, which Mm -hmm. is our language. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, your parents aren't Korean, or your parents aren't Chinese, or they'll make an assumption, your parents aren't Japanese. Mm. And I'll I'll explain, oh, I'm adopted. My parents are white. Um, 
And they'll say, well, don't you want to meet your real parents? Wow. Or they might even say uh, the right terminology, biological parents. Like, what? Don't you want to meet your biological parents and speak your real language? Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll come up too sometimes, your real language. Real language, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that there are a lot of people who just, their language around adoption is, I'll just say it, it's antiquated. I'm sure that that was perfectly acceptable language 150 years ago. <laughs> so if I'm hearing it correctly, uh, the question, who are your real parents? The antiquated component is the word real? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Real is the biggest problem there because what does one mean when they say real? Mm. Do they actually mean biological? That's the term I use, biological parents. I know some people Mm. who use the term birth parents. Mm. Uh, I know some people who, depending on the circumstances of their conception, use the term sperm donor. Um, Mm. It it can vary quite a bit. Right. Um, You know, I also see versions of it in print all the time. You know, Mm. the... The the mm-hmm. celebrity rags I see do this constantly where they'll refer to somebody like um, Angelina Jolie and her adopted children, Angelina Jolie and her real child, so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. I think it happens quite a bit more when you're a transracial um, adoptee. Yeah. In my case, my parents were white. They're no longer with us. I have an older sister who is also adopted from Korea, and she's Asian as well. I have friends who are white and adopted, and they would very rarely get that question. People wouldn't make the same assumptions. Once other people found out they were adopted, they would sometimes ask that question. But it wasn't a daily point of question or fascination for people in the same way it was for me and my sister. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Is this question then coming from an idea of what a family looks like, like actually visually looks like? Yeah. I mean, uh, one thing that does happen quite often as an adoptee who is Asian and who has a last name that is German, mm. uh, people do write in on a regular basis when they you know, do a search, they see what I look like, and they say, I just have the funniest story for you. I've been listening to your show this whole time, and I just thought it was hilarious. I looked up a picture of you this whole time I was picturing a white person. Isn't that hilarious? (laughs) And I get this letter all the time. I'm like, where's the punchline? What part's hilarious? Your assumption that only white people can have a German last name? Is that the hilarious part? That's T. And I know they mean it in like in a sweet kind of like, oh, I'm so interested in Mm -hmm. you. I was looking up more on you. And Mm -hmm. I think it's well-intentioned, but maybe that's one you keep to yourself. (laughs) Uh, But antiquated language aside, why do you think people want to know about your biological parents? I think a lot of people assume, why wouldn't you want to? Don't you want to know your real parents? Don't you want to know what you came from? Don't you want to know this? And To me, that's such a tiny, minuscule sliver of my life, and I don't even remember Mm. it. So it's not particularly important to me. Mm. Um, But I totally understand why it's important for other people. And they do want to track down their biological parents. My older sister did at one point, and she did try. Mm. And I'm not of the same mindset. I, I don't particularly have any interest in that. And every adopted person is different, just like all humans are different. And some of the people who question me on it, Maybe they love their own parents so much that it's unfathomable mm-hmm. that I wouldn't want to right. you know, meet my biological parents. Or they love their own children so much. They become parents and they say, mm. 
you really need to meet your biological parents because I cannot tell you how much they love you. Yeah. Have a little, you know, empathy for them. Uh, look at what they gave up for you. You should be so grateful to your biological parents. You should go back and thank them, you know. Mm. Um, I don't know that they would necessarily want to meet me either. And mm. if they don't, that's fine. I don't mm. want to meet them. And I could totally see where they wouldn't want to meet me <laughs> and where that would be very disruptive to their lives too. Right. And not everybody was conceived in love and not everybody was conceived under good circumstances. Let's mm. be real. I could have yeah. been conceived under the worst possible circumstances. And for me to show up out of nowhere and say, I need to know who I am, might be completely heartbreaking for somebody else, mm. you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Going back a bit, when you mentioned that some white adoptees, you know, don't really get asked this, can you talk a bit more about that? How are transracial adoptees viewed differently? Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who just assume that whatever I came from was way worse than if I were white like my parents. Uh, uh, what do you remember about being adopted? And then I'll tell them I was, you know, a year old. And, well, what do you remember about that time? And I'll ask them, what do you remember about being 12 months old? And, exactly. and they'll say, <laughs> and, and they'll say, did you block it out? I've heard that so many times in my life. Oh. It must have been quite traumatic because you blocked it out and you're not remembering it. Are you sure you don't remember? And I'm like... I really don't. I don't remember being one. Yeah, who does? <laughs> well, I do, but that's different. Oh, okay, Josh, well. do you really? <laughs> Superpower Harv over here. <laughs> Listeners also know that Harv is six foot tall, has six pack abs. You know, like. yeah, I, I, let me first turn the video off, please. Then we'll talk about that. <laughs> So when people say things like, oh, this must have been so traumatic that you blocked it out, are they making an assumption that your adoption, heavy air quotes, saved you from something worse? Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people assume you're so lucky your parents wanted you. Oh, you're so lucky that you got adopted. Oh, I can't imagine how bad it must have been. And I just hope you are thankful every day that you got adopted. And that's also complicated because, hmm. you know, not everybody who is adopted ends up in a dreamy family. My family right. had loads of problems. Um, my father and his wife were so incredibly abusive, I haven't seen them in 20 years. They're not allowed to see me for good reason. And oh. so all the assumptions that certain people have that like, oh, adopted kids, they should feel lucky because they were really chosen. Mm. But sometimes you're chosen by assholes. Let's just be real. <laughs> and not everybody is well equipped to be a parent, whether their kids are homemade or adopted. Mm. And more often than not, when people adopt kids, they're not doing it because they're trying to be charitable. They're doing it because they want to be parents. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're a more charitable person than everybody else. Mm. <laughs> uh, and off the completely off the records, but what do you think motivates Angelina Jolie? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we can keep that off the record, Harv. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of celebrities have adopted over the years um, for various reasons. And um, she just going to kind of misquote, but sort of paraphrase here that the connection she feels to her kids who are adopted in some ways, she says, is more intense than that uh, to her biological kids huh. because she feels that they were born already within a circumstance where there was struggle and that makes her love them more. It is problematic in its own way, <laughs> but it's also very Angelina Jolie, right? <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I feel like now that I think about it, the stereotype is 
a bunch of white celebrities adopting racialized kids. And that's what we see in media. Mm -hmm. In your experience, what was it like being raised by white parents? There are a lot of white parents who try very hard to understand what it's like for their kids being non-white. But sometimes their version of trying comes out like, mm -hmm. you're just as good as white, which is something that I heard growing up. Mm. Things like this that are just like, hold on. As a kid, <laughs> I thought that was a compliment. And then the older I got, I was like, so you're setting the standard of what we should all aim to be as white. And I'm as good as that. Just a oh. second. Can't I just be good enough with what I am? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of good intentions there. But I think that there still is work that needs to be done on making sure that people who adopt kids are given the education that they should be given. I think that racism is what it is, where white supremacy is what it is. Mm -hmm. And white supremacy doesn't mm -hmm. disappear just because a white parent loves their Asian child or black child. Right. Racism still exists mm -hmm. in the world. And as much as a white parent may love their kids and assume that their kids are insulated against that or that being white adjacent will make it easier for them, that only goes so far because no matter how white adjacent I was in certain situations growing up, I was never white. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time to be okay with that because I really hated for a while there waking up every morning and looking in the mirror and seeing that I wasn't white. It was mm -hmm. so miserable and so sad for me. And I just didn't want to be ugly anymore. Yeah. And just praying, God, what could I do to look more white? And this is me as a kid. And then coming into teenage years and young adulthood, and realizing like, oh, I look totally fine. This whole time I thought that I was a freakish, I don't know, people should cover their eyes so they don't have to look at. And I look perfectly fine. I'm not saying I'm like, <laughs> I'm not saying I look like a movie star, but I also don't look like an accident either. You know, I look perfectly fine. <laughs> hey, for listeners who haven't seen a picture of you, you could tell them you look like anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> this is the power of podcasting. Yeah. I mean, I, I do want to say my family did do certain things right that I'm really grateful for. So yeah. they had a little photo album that I used to love looking through and they would use it to tell me the bedtime story of uh, the day I was adopted. This is the first picture that the agency ever sent to us. Mm. This is us driving to the airport excited. Cool. This is when we got to meet you for the first time. This is when we brought you home. And this is the first uh, meal we ate together. And having that little story, mm -hmm. I, I just think all parents should celebrate it and not be ashamed of it and not hide it. Mm. Making that story something to cherish, something that you look forward to as a bedtime story can be such a sweet thing. So I'm very much in favor of that. Mm. Kristen, I think you've already said it. But to clarify, is asking who your real parents are an inappropriate question? Oh, yeah, totally. It's a very inappropriate question. <laughs> don't, don't ask that question. <laughs> ask yourself, is this information something that makes sense for me to ask for under these circumstances? Right. And if it makes sense for me to ask this question, what is the right way to ask it? Uh, think about the wording of it. What does real mean to you? You know, mm. who's deciding what's real and what's not real? Is it only real if society deems it more valuable? Mm -hmm. And that's part of what real feels like to me. You're giving more validity to one kind of relationship when it doesn't necessarily deserve more validity. Mm. I, I believe there was a recently a movie about this. Uh, I think it was an Indian person who was adopted. 
by an Australian family, and then he goes and meets uh, his real parents or something like that. This is the Dev Patel uh, movie. You... Hold on. Did you just say real parents? Oh, oh. <laughs> I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I am oh, so sorry. Oh, my God. Wasn't I brought on here to dispel <laughs> that word okay. from here? Biological parents. <laughs> see, see, there goes. There are the biases. My apologies. My sincere apologies. <laughs> Like Kristen said, she isn't interested in meeting her biological parents, but some adoptees are. Here's a voice note from Ryan Cap, who shares how this question lands for her. I'm Ryan Cap. I'm a grad student studying English. I was adopted from Hunan, China when I was a year old, and I grew up in Strathroy, Ontario. My personal experience with my birth parents is that I have no idea who they are. I have these little details. Like I know that they gave me a name. It's Bywin, which means white cloud, but I've never made a formal search. I would definitely be interested in trying to find them at some point, but I've just never had the time or frankly, the emotional capacity to focus on that. It is a disappointing effort for a lot of adoptees, especially when you don't have a lot to work with. When I get the question of, do you know your real parents? There's a little bit of um, sensitivity around that because I would really love to know. It's like, hey, you know, if you know my real parents, let me know. <laughs> Not that they're the real ones, but you get what I mean. Getting that question is definitely a reminder of that kind of painful logging for a family in a history that you'll never be able to know. I think it's a great opportunity to have a conversation about adoption, about what family means beyond blood ties. But it's more important to prioritize adoptee experiences. So not necessarily what they don't know, but what they do know that place less emphasis on their origins and more their day-to-day -day experience as an adoptee and how they feel about their own circumstances. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Some people who are adopted never meet their biological parents. Yes, Elena, mm. I know that's the term to use. <laughs> okay, terminology king, he's got it. The narrative we often see in media about adoption is that adoptees, you know, they don't know their birth parents, but then they go on this big journey to reconnect with them. But lots of adoption stories are more complicated than that and don't really fit into this whole idea. My name is Tony Hines. I'm an interracial adoptee, adopted from Washington, D.C. I have two uh, white parents, and these two white parents happen to be two women, which was not something that was a uh, happenstance or normalcy during the mid-90s. He's a training specialist focusing on interracial and LGBTQ adoptive families, and he wrote a book called The Son with Two Moms. Welcome, Tony. Glad to have you. Thank you. Glad to be a part of Inappropriate Questions today. So, Tony, to start, can you tell us as much as you want to about your adoption story? 
Yes. Yes. Thanks for asking. So I lived for the course of about the first year of my life with my grandmother and with my birth mom. It was during the course of that year that my birth mom, I think, realized that it was going to be hard for her to care for me in the way that she really wanted to. And that's because my birth mom happens to be schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. She would sometimes take me to an orphanage and she would, I don't want to say leave me there, but she would have the, the caretakers there care for me over a weekend or for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And then she would take me back to her house. Mm -hmm. And it was during one of these times that I'm told that my mom was told, hey, either you need to leave Tony here in this um, orphanage indefinitely, or you need to take him home indefinitely, but you can't keep doing this, this back and forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my mom decided to have me stay at the orphanage indefinitely, I think with the thought in mind that she would come back later or that my grandmother would be the one raising me in the future. Mm. So I remained in that orphanage until I was about three years old. And it was at this time that Mary and Janet, my two moms, came into the picture. Mm. So they were my foster parents. And then when I was five, they decided to formally adopt me. Mm. So this is, this is where the, the story takes a, a bit of a, a turn. So that adoption was granted when I was five years old. But three or four months later, the adoption was actually overturned by a panel of judges who said that a white same-sex headed household was not the right household to raise a black child in. Mm -hmm. And we found out that my birth family had actually appealed the adoption. Mm. And so, you know, what happens next after that? Well, there were a lot of moving parts going, going on. So I was mm -hmm. kind of figuring out which family should I be loyal to, because I was actually asked by my mom, my birth mom, when I was seven, when the custody battle was still ongoing, mm -hmm. Tony, would you prefer to live with them or would you prefer to live with me or with your grandmother? Mm -hmm. And I looked my mom in the eye and I said, mom, I prefer to live with them, with Mary and Janet. And, and I remember she started crying. Mm -hmm. And then I remember my grandmother being upset by, by what I had said as well. Mm -hmm. And I remember how that felt. I remember feeling very guilty, feeling almost ashamed in a way that I had picked another family mm -hmm. over my flesh and blood. But at the same time, I knew in my heart for me that it was still the right decision mm -hmm. to make mm -hmm. at that time. And I still feel that way today. Mm -hmm. My mom's decided to appeal that decision and they appealed it all the way up to the Supreme Court where, wow. it was, where it was knocked down to the lower courts, mm -hmm. who ended up deciding upon this joint custody agreement between birth family and adoptive family. Mm -hmm. So that means for me that I was growing up with Mary and Jane and my two moms. Mm -hmm. But on the weekends, particularly on Sundays, I would go and visit with my birth family. And once in a while... I saw my birth mom, but it was it was actually mainly my my grandmother who who I saw for the most part growing up who was attached to that that birth family. Mm -hmm. And so when I when I talk about my story, I, I try to get all those those nuggets in there because I realize that even for me sometimes it feels complicated to explain because there's a lot of moving parts to it. Mm -hmm. Tony, this is uh, uh, and uh, please forgive me. I am trying to be. Uh, not rude in any way, but this is a very heart-wrenching story for a little child to go through all this. 
Do you remember a lot of it or it's just that uh, you've heard a lot of it? I remember all of it. You know, well, I shouldn't say all of it, right? Because I obviously don't remember when I was one or two or <laughs> three years old. I remember my birth. <laughs> right. <laughs> when they cut the umbilical cord, right? I remember that. <laughs> no, so I don't remember all of it, but I do remember what this felt like when I was a child. Mm-hmm. It felt hard. Mm-hmm. The innocence that a lot of kids have was kind of shattered for me when I was younger because I knew about racial complexity when I was younger than most kids will know about it. I knew about Mm -hmm. this idea that people weren't as accepting of LGBTQA plus families Mm -hmm. because I was getting messages that, well, is he going to be able to grow up and have a healthy sense of himself as a black man? Is he going to be gay as if that was is a negative <laughs> thing right negative thing and is it even possible yes correlation causation yeah exactly but even having everyone stare at our family when we were out mm. and about having people kind of do that stop and double take and kind of try to make a connection if we were mm. even in line somewhere who is this mm. child that's next to you is he somebody else's child? Do we take both of you when we're seating you? Mm-hmm. What what do we do? And so these were all things that I was noticing even at a pretty young age. Tony, you have anticipated 10 of my questions already. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry for being a great guest. <laughs> so, Tony, you have not clearly stated that, but I uh, am assuming that this would have been very traumatic for you. Mm. Well, you know... And I hesitate to use those words for myself. And and here's why any adoption starts with loss, Mm. because that adoptee has been separated at some point in time from their birth family. Mm. So the physical memories that they have, the separation there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, with my situation there, there were these added layers that were going on. And yes, there there was trauma there. Mm -hmm. But I, I hesitate to to call it a a very traumatic experience, because when we say things like that, the listeners at home have this sense that adoptees are are these fragile little things Mm -hmm. that are only defined by by that trauma that they've gone through and Mm -hmm. that they are only their their stories. I want to say it was not a normative family experience for me. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, I will not say that my life was devoid of joy or Mm -hmm. or happiness and that I didn't get valuable things from both my birth family and my adoptive family. Mm -hmm. Given all that we've talked about so far, I can imagine the question, do you know your real parents, might have been really tough to answer. What was it like getting that question growing up? Right. So people would ask me that question all the time. Is who was who your real mom? Who's your real sibling? Mm-hmm. So when I was younger, I used to say that I'm adopted and my birth family member is this. My birth family member is that. Mm. So I would try to correct them right away. Mm-hmm. But I don't ever remember an occasion in which I asked someone the question back, like, what do you mean real? Mm. Or... Or why are you saying real? Or I'm not going to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And these are all things that adoptees can do if they want to. Mm -hmm. But a lot of us don't because 
we've become so used to people having that inclination about our families. Mm -hmm. So we feel that this is an expectation that we should have for people to be ignorant, for people to not understand mm -hmm. uh -huh. that there is this belief that one family is secondary and one family is first. Mm. Right. Uh, so there's still something I'm trying to understand, and I hope it's a Great. fair question. Okay, so so already your uh, adopted parents, things in the 90s were way worse than today, and by no means today it's perfect, but it's way better. So they were already dealing with uh, a gay couple-related issues, and now they come and adopt a black kid. What would have possibly motivated them uh, to add another layer, they, they, they had enough trouble of their own. Anyways. Right, right. Now, that's a great question. And I have asked my mom that question sometimes. I say my mom because my other adoptive mom, unfortunately, passed away when I was 12 years old. Mm. But I ask my mom that question. Sometimes I say, you know, what's the deal with that? <laughs> Her response is really, well, we thought about it and it didn't hinder us from wanting to adopt. Mm. And the other piece of it is that D.C. in the 1990s was nicknamed Chocolate City because over 80 percent of the population was black American. So if my moms wanted to adopt in the D.C. area, it was likely they were going to adopt a black child. Mm -hmm. And I I do think that they probably underestimated how much work would go into raising a child like me. Mm. Now, they did do a good job of educating me about my culture, my roots, my heritage. But mm -hmm. as, as white people, they hadn't lived in, in my shoes before, obviously. Mm. And there wasn't, there wasn't the same type of education for them available as interracial adoptive parents as is available today. Right. Is that what got you into doing the work you do today, educating adoptive families on these topics? For sure. And that's, um, I wish that my moms had had some of the same training that I'm giving parents today. Mm. I also, though, just want to say that even after giving parents lots of training and stuff like this, this is still a family type that is going to have its unique challenges attached to it. Mm -hmm. It's not going to take away the feelings from that interracially adopted person that I'm not this enough. Right. I'm not mm. black enough because I was raised by white people. I'm mm. not Asian enough. I don't speak the language of my birth culture. Other Asians are calling me a banana, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. If I'm black, I'm being called an, an Oreo. Mm -hmm. And I can mm -hmm. give all the training that I can in the world. But these are still things that interracially adopted peoples are often are going to face. Mm. But I think it's important to to let kids and interracial adoptive families know you don't have to try to be black or you don't have to try to be white. Mm -hmm. You know, be yourself, but educate yourself about your cultural roots and heritage at the same time. Mm. Mm. Uh, Tony, to conclude, do you think asking adoptees about their real parents is appropriate? Who's your real parent? Definitely inappropriate. <laughs> We should ask people, are you comfortable telling me about some of your adoptive experience? Mm -hmm. And if you are, please feel free to share that with me. Hmm. Throughout the course of that answer, you will find out 
in your own mind, even from your own convoluted definition, who the real parent, who the birth parent is, because mm. that person will will tell you that. And if they say that I prefer not to talk about it, respect their space and their privacy in that regard, too. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would mm -hmm. respond to that question. If someone wanted to ask it in a a nice way, a good way, in a non-inappropriate mm -hmm. way. <laughs> yeah. It's really great to talk about inappropriate questions that people have because usually if they're questions, especially if they're questions from younger people, they're not coming from a place of hate, but of curiosity. Mm -hmm. And the curiosity mm -hmm. is coming from a place of ignorance about things that they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And the ignorance is coming from places and systems that are creating mm -hmm ways of being that are perceived as ideal or less ideal that people are now internalizing. So mm. it's important that we have conversations about how to respond and answer those things. Well, that was a really great summary of our show, actually. And I think, you know, <laughs> we're always like, how do we explain the show? And so I think we should just refer to that recording and credit Tony mm. and then we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Anthony Rispoli. I'm 24 years old. I was adopted from South Korea when I was a few months old. My biological parents, uh, the, the way I phrase it actually is I refer to my adoptive parents as just mom and dad. But as far as like my biological parents, I just use the Korean words, which is just oma and appa. My oma, she was single. She was uh, a student. She was left by herself. So she had to make a very difficult decision. Being asked, you know, who are your real parents? What happened to your real parents? I think the intent is what I appreciate because I can't fault people for, you know, being curious because one, it's only natural. And two, they realize like, hey, this is something very unique about this person. I want to learn more. Something I've actually realized too, as I've gotten older, is a lot of people, they kind of tiptoe around it or I could tell that they're treading very carefully because they don't know how like, how sensitive I am, how sensitive my story is, and the circumstances. So that's something I've actually come to really appreciate and respect about people. And like, if I sense that like they're like not sure where to toe the line, I always stop them. Literally stop them in conversation. Be like, ask whatever you want. If you say something that's out of line or that's just not right, or you know maybe it's a better way of saying it, I will tell you. As a show based in Canada, we felt it was really important to talk about the 60s scoop. Coming off of the residential school system, many Indigenous children were removed from their families and communities and placed in white families. And even today, 52% of children in foster care in Canada are Indigenous, when Indigenous children make up only 7% of the child population. I'm speaking to Raven Sinclair. My name is Raymond Sinclair. I'm um, from George Gordon First Nation in the southern part of Saskatchewan Treaty 4 area. I'm a professor of social work. Raven herself was adopted during the 60s scoop and has done lots of research and work on this topic. As a heads up, there's discussion of abuse in this interview. It's such an interesting question, isn't it? Do you know your real parents? Yeah, what do you think yeah. about the question? I think that it's kind of insulting. Mm. What it does is it serves to legitimize birth parents and delegitimize any other 
type of parent Mm -hmm. because my other parents aren't fake. (laughs) (laughs) They're not, you know, amorphous blobs. They're skin and bone and blood. They're they're as real as anybody else. Right. Real belongs to like differentiating between humans and like cartoons. (laughs) So I think that when people ask the question, they're actually referring to, um, you know, who gave birth to you? You know, did you come out of you know, the mother. Right. <laughs> and was she impregnated by the father? And frankly, that's nobody's business, right? Yeah. <laughs> and only as much as you want to share. Um, could you tell me about your adoption story? Sure. I was born in a small town in Alberta. I'm the ninth child of 11. Uh, my father died just, he died young. Um, he caught a flu uh, when I was about a month old and um, he just never really recovered from it. And so my mother, we moved back to Saskatoon at some point. And uh, we came into contact with the child welfare system a couple of times. The last time that I can remember was the time that we that I was removed permanently. Mm. And we were actually all removed permanently. Um, my two oldest brothers were adopted um, by a pedophile. And, oh, uh, that's awful. I think that was the purpose for that. And then me and my two younger siblings were adopted as part of the uh, the 60 scoop as part of the AIM program. Mm. My adoption was difficult, but my parents were, they were awesome. Mm. My father, you know, he, he became my best friend and, um, and he was a, you know, he was a good person, a, a deep thinker and, uh, you know, advocated for the rights of people. And that was just part of what he did. He cared for the homeless. And, um, so he was a really great role model. Um, and my mother was, was kind of, kind of bad sometimes. <laughs> She was a bad mummy. Um, but she did the best she could with what she knew. My father and I figured she was probably a survivor of uh, abuse herself. Uh. And then later on, as I did my own recovery work, I was able to forgive my mother. And I'm grateful that she was, uh, you know, she was in my life for, for a period of time. So they were my parents. And uh, mm-hmm. um, I do have a birth mom. And I, and I, had, I was fortunate to be able to meet her when, we, when I came back. And my father remarried, so then I had a, a awesome stepmother. And over time, we created a really strong relationship. So I had, you know, five parents. I have three moms, mm. and they're all parents, you know. Mm. So someone says, like, you know, what was your relationship with your mom? It's like, which one? <laughs> so today, would you consider all of these people part of your family? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, without question. And that's got nothing to do with biology. Yeah. My story that I think really sort of highlights this question that you asked of, you know, your real parents, Mm -hmm. because it's ludicrous. The question is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You mentioned the 60 scoop earlier. Mm -hmm. Can you give a bit of background into what it is and how it all started? Uh, When the residential schools, you know, started to um, literally disintegrate, we had five, six generations of residential school survivors and there was lots of sort of turmoil but social workers getting involved really just exacerbated the problem, I think, because um, removing a child from an already vulnerable family or moving, removing the children, it's very punitive. What are you saying to a family when you take away all the children? It's like you don't, you don't have the capacity to raise these children, right? Mm-hmm. Well, how convenient is that when all these generations of kids were raised in institutions where the only role models they had were violent, abusive, lying thieving, <laughs> mm. quote, religious folks. Mm-hmm. But, but the 60 scoop, I mean, the term itself came about from this BC social worker who um, in 1960, she said, we're removing these kids for, 
for no reason. Mm -hmm. And we're placing them into homes about which we know nothing. We have, they haven't been vetted. Oh, wow. And she said, no matter how we cloak our, our words in child welfare jargon, we're putting these kids at risk. And now we have kids, I'm calling it the foster care scoop, because our kids are being removed at the same rate. Wow. And it's it's always the same story, right? It's it's basically some foster family who wants to keep their child permanently. Mm. And for some reason, they think that they can raise an Indigenous child better than their Indigenous family or community can. And it's absolutely, it's not true. So the same system from like the 60s scoop and the same kind of machinations are, from what you're saying, very much present and ongoing. It's because yeah. it's interesting. We think of this as, you know, a historical moment. Did the moment really end? Yeah, no, the moment didn't end at all. Hmm. And in fact, I mean, for me now, really, it's it's purely economics because the whole system really incentivizes the removal of our children. Because hmm. in foster care, you know, when I was adopted, my parents didn't have any, we didn't have any other exposure to the child welfare system. They didn't get any support uh, at all for me. So I was financially, you know, their responsibility. But when kids are in foster care and they're given permanency, then the foster family is basically guaranteed an income until the child is 18. Wow. Um, and there's so many kids who it's like once they're 18, the family just sort of like, you know, washes their hands of them. They don't have their birth family. They don't have their community. They don't have any any supports in place. But the check has stopped coming in. So it's like, okay, here you go. Pack your bags. Where you go. It's this whole foster care system where people are paid to raise our children, you know, under the premise that, that you know, our, our families can't. Mm. I mean, the reality is for foster kids and, and adopted kids, it's like they're the most vulnerable children because there's no watchful eyes, right? Mm. It's like when I was growing up, um, my mother was pretty abusive to me. Sorry to hear that. We we reconciled our relationship later on and, yeah, and I love her a lot now, but she was mean, man. Mm. And to the outside world, it looked like an ideal, you know, this awesome family who was being benevolent and mm. they were awesome because they rescued this poor little waif. But behind closed doors, it was a different matter. Mm. Now that I've thoroughly depressed you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this is the this is the type of reality that, that we live in. These are the truths that need to be told. Yeah. And if it pisses you off, then do something about it. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Looking into the question, uh, do you know your real parents? It's been interesting because I think uh, we've discovered that there's an assumption about people wanting to connect to their birth parents or reconnect to their birth family in some way. From your experience and your research, do many Indigenous adoptees and 60 Scoop survivors want to reconnect with their birth families? Is like How possible is it? It's quite easy in the Indigenous context. Hmm. If you know the province you're from and if you know your birth last name, your surname, mm. or even just the band, I mean, one call. I know so many adoptees who um, called the band office looking for family and they ended up, the person that answered the phone was a cousin or an aunt. or Oh, cool. Yeah. For me, it took me 11 days. Wow. I know. And that was just because back then we were using snail mail, right? <laughs> had you so had email and Facebook, it would have been It would have taken like, cinch. it would have taken one one email. And wow. probably same-day service. <laughs> right? uh, so it's very easy. But, you know, what I've encountered is the vast majority of adoptees, Indigenous adoptees, do return to a family, community, and culture. Hmm. If you haven't been adopted, you might not really understand what that what it means to 
to need to know who you are and who your people are and where you come from, because that's a given for you. Mm-hmm. And imagine that you were removed from that, every, everyone that you know, everything you know, mm. and, uh, and raised with a com- a com- in a completely different like country and an ethnic group and even religion. Mm-hmm. I think that Indigenous adoptees in particular, when we're raised in a, in a white context, uh, you know, my family were very well-intentioned, uh, but there was still racism. Mm. And, and for many, 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 it was further socialized through statements like, you have to study really hard and do good, or you're going to end up like a good-for-nothing drunken Indian. Oh. And, you know, it was supposed to be like a deterrent, but really the message that the kids got was that Indigenous is bad. And, and white is good. Mm. What was it like then, you know, having grown up with all this messaging, reconnecting with not only your birth family, but your culture? Uh, well, it was awesome, but it wasn't easy, right? Mm. And I came back to Saskatoon when, in, uh, in 1988. I applied for my status. I started to get curious about my family. And it took about 30 years to reconnect and reattach with them. It's really, it's a beautiful gift for me to have my siblings. That's awesome. What was that process like of reconnecting after all that time? Well, it was brutal. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I had been socialized a certain way and, mm. you know, everything about the lifestyles that they lived was foreign to me. And so I was also going through the, you know, that whole process of what does it mean to be an Indigenous woman? What does it mean to be a, a Cree woman? Mm. And who are my people? And, you know, what's my purpose? You know, those big those big life questions that, you know, are pretty essential to ask yourself. Mm. If someone asks you this question, how do you answer? Uh, well, I have five real parents. Which one are you referring to? <laughs> That's a wealth <laughs> of real parents. It is. And so then they would probably say, I mean, your birth parents. Yeah. And they said, okay, there are two of, of my five real parents. <laughs> is there something you wish people would ask adoptees instead of this question? Or in your case, specifically Indigenous adoptees? Hmm. You know, it would be like, I'm interested in your story. Are you willing to share some or any of it with me? Right. And, and kind of go from there. Yeah. That's nice and open-ended. Yeah. So, Elena, this episode made me think a lot. Hmm. Uh, and, and the word real... I would have used it much more loosely mm. uh, before I had uh, spoken to our uh, wonderful guests. Mm-hmm. And even during the episode, I used the term real parents mm. uh, because we are so, our brain is so tuned to that, yeah. that it will take us a little bit or take me a little bit more time to rewire. Not only the question of who your real parents are, mm-hmm. uh even asking a question who your biological parents are, that is hugely inappropriate. Yeah. I think that's super legit, too. I think we all need time to unlearn things, and that's part of what the show is about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it was cool to hear from someone like Kristen, for whom that's, you know, connecting with birth family isn't that important, mm-hmm. and someone like Raven, who found that connection to be really significant. Mm-hmm. And how it can be totally different for different adoptees. Absolutely. Yeah. The amount of layers, uh, right mm. from explaining their families to to just behaving in a certain way, to being 
thankful or not being thankful or whatever. The whole episode stated uh, the complications. Yeah, for sure. But on top of that, it's interesting that I think a lot of what I got from talking to our guests was that as much as there are so many complications, adoptees are also just normal people. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, adoptees have been through a lot, but that doesn't necessarily define them. Mm -hmm. Boy, I am so glad that I got to this episode before I met anybody who has been adopted. <laughs> We've gotten on the train to appropriate city. <laughs> I'm Harvinder Vadva. And I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle. Thanks for getting inappropriate with us. A huge thanks to our guests, Kristen Meinzer, Tony Hines, and Raven Sinclair. You also heard voice notes from Ryan Cap and Anthony Rispoli. Every episode has an accompanying webcomic, and this week it was illustrated by Lisa Udom-Khablam. You can find it on Instagram at IQ underscore podcast. Also make sure to visit cbc.ca forward slash IQ podcast for full transcript of this episode. The glorious gaggle behind this podcast are Sabrina Birch, Cindy Long, and myself. The show is mixed by Andrew Norton. Our chase producer is Sarah Melton, and our digital producer is Judy Z. Gu. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner, and our executive producer is RF Nurani. An inappropriate question is like using the inappropriate word in front of your guest after they have spent a whole interview saying why it is inappropriate. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.